This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where every week we take a look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking what's happened to the 140,000 pupils who've been severely absent since lockdown. We'll also be looking at the man taking on Erdogan, and we'll finally be examining Wales's murderous reputation. First up, in her cover piece for the magazine, journalist Harriet Sargent writes about the country's ghost children, that is, the staggering number of pupils that have not gone back to school since the pandemic. She joins us now alongside The Spectator's data editor, Michael Simmons. Harriet, could you talk our listeners through this problem? Yes, so there's always been children who are out of school, who dropped out of school. And before the pandemic, in about uh, in 2019, there were 60,000 children who were absent from school, who were spending more time out of school than in school. But that figure is quite extraordinary, has now risen up to 140,000 children. And these children are the victims of lockdown. These children, if we had not locked down the schools, they would still be in school having sort of happy and fruitful lives. And they're not because of lockdown. And this is a story you've been following for a long time now, from different children that you've managed to speak to about this problem? I mean, this may sound like a stupid question, but where have they gone? Well, for example, there was one one girl told me about a boy in her class and he vanished and then suddenly she saw the boy near the school on a piece of, sitting on a piece of cardboard, looking, as she said, you know, a bit dirty, a bit like someone who was homeless. So he'd been very popular at school. So children were buying him food, buying him clothes. And finally, somebody told the teacher and they got him back into school. And he didn't last because he was so far behind. He got really upset and angry and he left. And what is happening, there seems to be two groups. And I spoke to a school counsellor and various other people. And it seems to be that there's two groups of children. There's the children who cannot get out of their rooms who just stay in their rooms, crippled by anxiety and fear. And then there are children who cannot get off the streets, who are out on the streets, who are angry and who have no qualifications. And the problem is that when you look at prisons, you see how dangerous it is to have teenagers out on the streets with no qualification because 80% of youth offenders played truant at school, and over half of prisoners. And I know this firsthand because about 15 years ago, I befriended four uh, members of a gang from South London, and I've seen what's happened to them. At 15, they were out on the streets mugging and selling drugs. And 15 years later, they've been in and out of prison at great expense to themselves and to the state. And is this now going to happen to all 
this large quantity of young people. And what does that mean for society? How expensive is it going to be? You know, what is the human cost of it? And the problem is getting worse as well, it seems, doesn't it? Because this is something which you, you wrote about around a year ago. And, and, and when you wrote about it then, the number was about 100,000. And now it's 140,000. So, so you, you might expect after the pandemic is over and lockdown's over, the number to get better rather than worse. But it seems like it's... Heading yes, in the wrong direction. That, that's what I find extraordinary when this excellent report from the Centre for Social Justice came out, that the numbers have actually increased, and by so much. Hmm. And that, you know, everybody, all our attention during lockdown was focused on the elderly. And we all expected that children would somehow adapt. And actually, they haven't, and it's done them terrible damage. And just doing the interviews with some of these children was just heartbreaking I remember one boy who's middle-class family, very driven, competitive, delightful, intelligent young man, found himself in lockdown and none of the teachers were marking his work. Do all his work, send it in, wait very excitedly for his mark. They just didn't bother to mark his work. This went on term after term. He said, you know, what is the point? He lost all pleasure in his work. And he just sat in his room getting more and more depressed and then started listening to drill music and became very angry. Luckily, his parents got hold of him, got him counselling, got him back into school. So he was saved. Going back to your question about what happens to these children, I think that it does seem to... There's a rough divide between boys and girls, a rough divide. And I think the boys have joined gangs got involved in county lines, which is happening all over the country and is pulling in middle-class kids. And these sort of disaffected young people are sort of potential victims of that. And the girls, I uh, talked to one teacher who is in a very good, outstanding Ofsted, middle-class school, all girls in a leafy suburb. And she said that now 30, what was it now, like a third of the girls are not coming into school, or only intermittently coming into school. 30 of them have vanished altogether. Two have committed suicide. And she said what is happening to these girls is they're just sitting in their rooms, refusing to come out. So that's where half of them are sitting in their rooms, refusing to come out, and the other half are goodness knows where. Michael, I know you've been looking into some of the report by the Centre for Social Justice. Can you take us through a bit of the detail of it and, and what stood out most to you? So what the Centre for Social Justice have done is they've looked at the Department for Education's absence and attendance data, which is periodically released. And as Harriet mentioned, what the key focus of the report is these students who are severely absent, which means they miss 50% or more of possible school days that they could have attended. And that's gone up, as Harriet said, from 60,000 to now 140,000, which was the equivalent of around 137 schools where most of the children are not there. But they also look at this other figure, persistent absence, and that's when you miss more than 10% of um, possible school that you could have attended. And that number has also doubled since the pandemic. So although a lot of the focus is on these kids who have really disappeared, we're also seeing the sort of general attendance of everybody declining, and that's for a wide range of reasons. One thing particularly stark that the CSJ looked at is 
who these people are that are missing school. And um, one example is those children who are on free school meals, which tend to be from more deprived backgrounds, have an absence rate double that of those who are not on free school meals. So it's, it's not a problem that's affecting people equally, just like the pandemic and lockdowns didn't hit people equally. And Harriet says in her piece that young people moving into sixth form college are particularly vulnerable. Can, can you take us through that side of it, Michael? Yes, so the, the problem of severe absence is particularly acute in secondary schools. So 110,000 of the severely absent children are in state-funded secondary schools, and that gets worse with age. So it seems to be there's particular problems with children starting school where they're not ready for school, but then once they're in the system, they're sort of more likely to attend. But once they get into the older stages of the teenage years, that attendance drops off. So it seems to be something particularly around that age group where they are more likely to be susceptible to join a gang or to have anxiety, depression, or whatever the reason might be. Can I just come in there? Because I, I, this is very interesting you said that because I actually spoke to a woman who flagged this and she said she was a teacher. She said she was really worried about sixth form because she said yeah, at 16 they've just vanished. So they're meant to have joined sixth form college. And she said, I haven't seen them. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they've gone. And she said that when they've talked to the parents, a lot of the parents have said, oh, well, they're too fragile. Their mental health is too fragile and they can't come in or they can only come in half a day. And she said that as a teacher, you're told that if they say mental health, you just step back. You don't do anything. You can't make them come in. And anyway, anyway, they're past the age of 16, so they don't legally have to come in. And she says they're just dropping into a big black hole. She said, we don't know where they're going or what's happening to them. And there's no central database, she seemed to think, that she could find out where these children are, what to do about them. I mean, it's a very big question to ask, I know, but but what can be done to try, try and solve some of this, do you think? I mean, do you think there will be a, a situation in the future where the onus is once again put on, on teachers to try and navigate issues with children's mental mental health i mean if there is god forbid another lockdown or something like it what can we do to try and stop uh, but we can never lock down children again and we can must never ever expect children not to be socialized again listening to how they describe being locked up in their rooms being on these little google teach whatever a little square i mean it's just it's horrific it's like some kind of torture chamber so we must never ever do that again so was it fundamentally do you think a kind of misunderstanding about the resilience of children or or perhaps a misunderstanding about what elements of life can and can't transfer to online no it's just hysteria listening to i mean we all forget the teachers unions and what christine bauer said at the time oh you mustn't let these awful snotty-nosed children cuddle you i can't remember the exact quote but it was something like that The government seemed to conflate teachers' unions with children's best interests. Clearly, it's not. I mean, we locked down... I don't think any other country locked down schools. We seem to believe the teachers' unions that somehow teachers in this country were uniquely susceptible to COVID. Well, this didn't happen anywhere else. And we must start actually acting for the benefit of children and not for the teacher unions. And Michael, one of the things that Harriet mentions towards the end of her piece is the effect on early years development too. Can you take us through some of the effects that we're seeing 
in that area? Yeah, so I think in, in Harriet's piece, she mentioned speaking to a teacher who said that normally you might expect about half of children finishing nursery to not be ready for school. And that's jumped up to something closer than 80%. And that's reflected in sort of surveys you see of uh, teachers. But also the government does track development in certain things, you know, reading, vocabulary, communication skills for very young children. There isn't a lot of data on this yet, but we have seen on the initial data that that definitely did get worse during the pandemic. One piece of good news, though, is when they looked at obesity, obesity in young children really spiked during lockdowns. But when lockdowns finished, that number has actually decreased quite quickly. Now, the problem is it's easier to fix physical problems when you get kids back into school and back into a routine than it is educational problems. So it's yet to be seen whether the mislearning and the effects on those developmental areas will be fixed as quickly. I mean, I found it fascinating because when I was doing the early year stuff, I started talking to teachers and they all said, oh, it's terrible. You know, these children can't even put a coat on a hook and the parenting is abysmal. And then when I started talking to parents, I got this completely different story that they'd had this awful time during lockdown because a lot of them, um, special mother, well, new mothers had no access to any kind of help. I mean, there was no, everything stopped, you know, baby and toddler groups stopped. Um, health visitors stopped. GPs were, as we know, barely available. And they had no one to ask. And if you're a new mother, it's very frightening. Your child coughs. You think it's going to die in the next moment. And it's really terrifying. And they were under a lot of stress, very anxious. Many of them found the whole idea of being a parent extremely difficult because they were isolated. You know, they had just them and the baby. And that was it. And I mean, I had one friend who the mother actually rung her up, the new mother, so she could hear the baby cry to see if, if she thought that that was a, a, a dangerous cry or just a normal cry. And that was all the help she could get. So that, that meant, um, and I talked to a very interesting psychologist who said that, that these cho- little children, they are completely influenced by the mood of their parent. It's their weather pattern. And they had such a difficult time with their parents that when they get to school they are and rather like the older children they either sitting in a corner all anxious like the ones in their rooms or they're jumping off the walls and screaming and and behaving really badly. Would it be hyperbolic to perhaps suggest that young people were in a sense martyred in the pandemic to save an older generation we were, I mean, I'm getting old myself, so I hope I'm going to be saved at some future pandemic. <laughs> but I, I think we should have thought far more about the socialisation of children mm. and how important. You know, one here for us means nothing, but for them is absolutely crucial in their lives. Thank you, Harriet and Michael. Next up, in his piece for the magazine this week, the Spectator's Russia correspondent, Owen Matthews, looks at the opposition candidate who could usurp Erdogan. Owen joins us now alongside the Turkish journalist Etche Timokaran. Owen, over his two-decade-long rule, as you say in your piece, Erdogan's electoral superpower has been to somewhat reinvent and renew his image as a man of the people. But as the election approaches, he seems to be struggling to do just that. Why exactly is that? Uh, well, it's, in, in some ways, you could, you could ask the opposite of the question. is like, how has he managed to survive so long, despite his economic mismanagement, his quite well-documented corruption, and a catastrophic earthquake, which um, not only did um, his 
security forces and uh, emergency services handle extremely badly. But Erdogan himself actually said, you know, it's it's the work of destiny, which I think annoyed a lot of Turks, not least because he's actually said almost exactly the same thing several years ago after a mining disaster. Uh, so crucially, I mean, his, uh, what's changed in this election is that the uh, opposition has finally kind of got their act together and united behind a single candidate. And as I say in my piece, there are some questions about how effective Kemal Kilish Darolu is actually going to be. Uh, he's a rather sort of mild 74-year-old economist. His personal style is completely different to the bombastic style of Erdogan. But Erdogan um, seems to have been losing his grip. The polls are still neck and neck. But nonetheless, you know, for the first time in two decades, Erdogan really seems to be facing a, an election in which, in which he could actually lose. Eche, uh, if, if Erdogan is facing a possible election defeat in May. To what extent do you think his loss could be pinned to uh, the earthquakes in February? Do you think it is correct to say, uh, as Owen describes in his piece, that the social contract between the Turkish people and Erdogan, that they got security uh, in return for giving up a lot of personal freedom, do you think that has finally been broken by the response to these earthquakes? Well, uh, Owen's brilliant piece uh, tells many things, and one of them is this, you know, contract. I'm not sure if the contract was willingly signed by the Turkish society, at least not uh, by the 70% of it who didn't vote for Erdogan. Uh, it was a brilliant piece, Owen, by the way. Earthquake was a Pandora's box, actually. After 20, more than 20 years of rule, Erdogan, who actually came to power by an earthquake, through an earthquake in 1999, is now, uh, like, obviously dysfunctional. And it's, it, the, the earthquake revealed uh, the depth and the scale of corruption within the state apparatus that has been uh, handled by Erdogan personally since at least last 10 years. So yeah, Erdo uh, earthquake will be a turning point for many things. And people are not only angry with uh, Erdogan calling the earthquake, uh, you know, God's work or, you know, part of the destiny, but also there was obvious neglect rather than, uh, you know, dysfunctionality, actually, obvious neglect in the cities that didn't vote for Erdogan. So there was grudge, actually. And there was also uh, Erdogan's classic move of, I'm going to do everything on my own. So for two days after the earthquake, which is the critical time for those who were under the rubble, he didn't let anyone do anything, uh, not the state apparatus. And he tried to stop the civil organizations, the NGOs from working. And also there was the, there is the fact that at some point uh, when people were shouting from under the rubble, when they were telling where they are through Twitter, he shut down Twitter just like that. So, you know, there are so many things. I mean, like it's an endless list of almost obvious evil, I would say, uh, that Erdogan committed that won't be disregarded when people go to ballot boxes, I think. And can you tell us a bit more about Kemal Kalekdarbulu and what he's standing for? Kılıçdaroğlu. Well, good luck with his surname. He's... <laughs> I'm doing my best there. <laughs> uh, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu has been a, uh, how shall I put it, permanent figure in social democrat polit uh, democracy. And also, uh, as we say in Turkey, is Social Democrat Party, CHP, uh, it's harder to rule than ruling Turkey. That party is so complicated and 
confusing. So he's been running the party for quite a long time now. And he's become some somehow like a Gandhi figure. And Turkey is an extremely polarized country. So it is almost miracle that he brought together ultra-nationalists, central, uh, center-right, to that, you know, table, as we call the table of six, you know, build up this coalition. And also, as of today, they are getting the support of Kurdish party, HDP, as well. This is a massive political triumph, I would say. And Owen, do you think the CHP and other opposition parties actually stand much of a chance of unseating Erdogan in that he's had 20 years to essentially stack the deck in his favour, suppressing opposition and suppressing dissenting voices. I mean, even if he is uh, slipping in popularity, don't the opposition parties still have all of that against them? All of that, exactly, Will. Uh, But also they have a massive problem of the payroll vote, for want of a better term, is that over its 20 years in power, the AK Party has actually empowered a whole class of bureaucrats, teachers, judges, professors. There's a whole section of Turkish society that's beholden very strongly to the AKP, to to Erdogan for their their position, so therefore they don't want to lose them. But also actually almost as significantly, in a somewhat like Putin, the um, AK party has actually effectively dispossessed and dishonestly taken over a whole swathe of businesses which have been handed over to their supporters. Plus, they have actually have funneled a tremendous amount of uh, money towards particularly the construction industry and notoriously, as we saw, you know, disastrously construction industry that sort of cut all kinds of corners um, and cost tens of thousands of lives in the earthquake. Um, so you also have like a huge vested interest that's going for the AK party. The question about the JHP, about this, about the CHP and whether they can defeat him, focuses on the person of Kirish Darul, because we're actually talking about you know, a, a country that under Erdogan has gone from a parliamentary system to a presidential system. So the personality of the president, of the future president, you have to ask what kind of a person could unseat Erdogan. And in that sense, actually, the, the opposition, the United opposition, were, you know, criticised and, you know, there the, 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 there is a much more obvious candidate in the in 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 the in the person of Ekrem Imamoglu, who's the mayor of Istanbul, but unfortunately he's under criminal charges, and actually potentially he's a little bit more of a divisive figure because he has actually taken on Erdogan and won. Whereas Kirish Darulu, as Ejihanam said, was actually you know has been always there. He's like the barman in in The Shining. He's always been there. You know, for twenty years as that I've been writing about Turkey, it's you know that he's he's been in politics and. The point is that he's a safe pair of hands. He is older figure who is known for his calm. He's not a firebrand. He's not sort of taking down and taking on uh, Erdogan as Imamoglu did. He's just, you know, a safe guy in uncertain times. And I think that's his greatest appeal. And then, Jay, just finally, I mean, do you think if Kilitarojlu does come to power, that will see an end to some of the corruption in, that we've seen in Turkish politics recently? Or are you less optimistic? Well, uh, this is uh, one of his biggest election promises to end the corruption and to go after those who have committed corruption. As Owen Bey said earlier, Turkey has been turned into a 
web of political money by Erdogan. And I keep seeing, you know, Europeans asking, Europeans have been asking me, why is he so popular? Why is he so popular? It's not, you know, his personal appeal. He created this web of political money and political money trickles down from his hands to the capillary system of the entire country. So all those people in an election are fighting uh, for Erdogan because they're fighting for their own prosperity, for their own lives. So Kılıçdaroğlu, uh, the opposition candidate, is coming to change this. And I have to tell you, I mean, like, Britain has seen Brexit process for about a year. United States experienced Trump for only four years. I'm sure now you know how maddening it is. And we have been going through the same thing for 20 years. So Kılıçdaroğlu, in this case, the opposition candidate, uh, represents some calm and normalization and, you know, maybe a bit of catching breath for the country, which is much needed at this point. Eche and Owen, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And finally, Kara Kennedy, staff writer at The Spectator World, writes in this week's magazine about growing up in the Welsh murder capital, Pontypridd, and her own near miss. She joins us now alongside Welsh crime writer and psychologist Emma Kavanagh. Cara, to start with, could you take us through your own encounter with a recently convicted killer from your town? So it started probably about two years ago now. And this guy that I knew, and we hadn't met like one-on-one, but we'd kind of been in the same room together. He was friends with a lot of my friends, started messaging me. And we kind of spoke for the first few months, like I would reply when I felt like it. And then slowly his messages became more and more kind of unhinged. If I didn't reply to him, he would get very angry, which is obviously like a big red flag. And then, yeah, it just slowly progressed into like him saying very weird things. A lot of it was very sexual, asking me to meet him in different places, including forests and kind of areas that I definitely didn't want to go and meet him in. And it, it became a joke with my friends. Whenever he would message me this unhinged stuff, I would send it to my friends and we would kind of have, have a laugh about it because it he it sounds like worse than it was, but at the time a lot of young boys in my town were taking a lot of drugs their personalities were changing. So it wasn't something that I was like initially scared about or or worried about. But then I remember moving to London and a murder had just happened in my town and it was all over the news and it was kind of business as usual because like we just said, murder is nothing new for Pontypridd. But I remember having a feeling, oh, wow, another one. And weeks later, it turned out that it was the guy that had been messaging me every day, basically, for like two years. And that was when I realised, wow, maybe, maybe I should have realised these red flags before. (laughs) And was it quite a shocking revelation? Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't really think so until I started telling other people about it. I remember telling... Freddie Gray and then it turned into like you know when you you meet somebody or you introduce somebody to somebody in the pub and they're like oh tell that story 
So then when I started telling other people, they were like, wow, this is crazy. But for me, like I said, growing up, it was just kind of something that happened. A lot of young boys specifically would do a lot of drugs and a lot of murders would happen. So this just kind of combined the two. Anna, you are a Welsh crime writer. Can, can you start by telling us how you got into that field and, and whether Wales provides you with inspiration for your writing? <laughs> well, my background originally is I was a police and military psychologist. So I came to crime kind of through the other through the other side, so through policing. I think, especially initially, a lot of my inspiration came from the, the Welsh landscape. Um, I think we were often used to seeing crime books being set you know, in big cities. Um, and it, it was quite unusual to see stuff happening in Welsh towns, places we could identify. So yeah, especially initially, um, I was very much driven to sort of represent the kind of experiences we had here. I think you're right, Emma, in terms of the landscape that Wales provides. There's something quite sinister about it, especially in the valleys. Even like logistically, you're kind of caved in. You're at the bottom of a of a valley. There's just mountains surrounding you. It's quite sinister. Yeah. Well, Cara, I, I also wonder, because um, uh, you suggest in your piece that there is a a real problem with mental health, and you've mentioned already hard drug use around where you grew up. I mean, presumably that, that is quite directly linked to, to the, the high rates of, of murder and attempted murder and, and so on. Yeah. Well, also one thing that I didn't write about in the piece, which deserves kind of a piece of its own, is how high child deaths are in Pontypris. Uh, I don't know the numbers specifically, but over the last few years, I can think of four or five. The the most famous one recently being the case of Logan Mwangi, which was in Bridgend, which I think is where Emma is from. But yeah, I do think that the, the kind of high murder rates are directly linked to mental health issues. And I question if being in such an isolated place, like like I said, even like logistically, you're pretty isolated in the valleys from kind of big cities and towns, whether that plays into it. Like, for example, people that live deeper in the valleys than where I did, like to go to Cardiff, the nearest town, is like quite a big day out because it, it's, it's logistically so far away from everything. So I think that pro- probably does play into it. And Emma, just on a slightly broader matter here, do you think it's it's fair to say that there's almost a kind of often perverse interest in murder stories? I'm thinking here of the story of um, Nicola Bali's disappearance and all the kind of amateur sleuthing that went on around that. I mean, what, what do you make of all that? Do you think it's Do you think there's something a bit strange there or is that just natural human instinct? I do think it's natural human instinct. I mean, we as as people, we are programmed to pay attention to the things that are dangerous to us. And our attention system is built in a way that we will prioritise threat above all else. So I think any kind of murder story plays right into that kind of thing. And I, I think, you know, specifically with, with, with the case you mentioned, I think it's the, the normalcy of it that brought it to so many people's attention. You know, I think so many people could relate to her experiences. And I think those are the the kind of things that we are attuned to focus on because it's it's a really protective thing. You know, we want to try and protect ourselves from harm 
So paying attention to dangerous things is is a really evolutionary, evolutionarily wise strategy. And Cara, just finally, on that point there by Emma about our need to protect ourselves from things, sort of coping mechanisms, I suppose, uh, something that struck me very much in your piece was a sort of dark humour that, that seemed to be quite common when you were growing up. I mean, you, you say in the piece how you, how you used to joke with your mother that you were only ever one dog walk away from being chopped up. Yeah, well, I think it is probably a bit of a survival instinct, right, to kind of joke about it and pass it off as 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 something that you can kind of laugh about. But I think the the case that I write about, where the guy that is just being convicted, um, was messaging me. Me and my friends kind of had a. We described it as like a, the bystander effect, where you always think that somebody else is going to deal with it. Somebody else is going to maybe say, "Oh, look, does this guy need help?" And everybody just kind of passes the buck to somebody else. So I think there's probably an element of both that when you grow up surrounded by like a lot of death and misery, you almost become totally desensitized by it. My mother thinks that I'm totally desensitized by death now because I've seen so much. But also, yeah, you just kind of think that somebody else is going to deal with it, I guess. Thank you, Cara and Emma. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do pick up a copy of the magazine to read everything we've talked about. I'm Laura Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.